0: So today, Matthew chapter 15, verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Anthony. Good morning, my name is Bill Gorman, and I'm the campus pastor here at the Brookside Campus of Christ Community, and really glad that you're here this morning, and I just want to add my welcome to Anthony's. I'm really grateful that you're here, especially if this is your first time, and uh, maybe this is your first time this morning being in church in a really long time, or perhaps even ever, and uh, I know that's not an easy thing to do, to walk into an unfamiliar place, um, and perhaps a church even more so. So thanks for coming. Thanks for being here this morning, And uh, Before we look at this passage that Anthony read for us this morning, um, I want to begin and and pause and pray, and specifically pray for refugees this morning. This is National Refugee Sunday, and we watched the video, and just want to pause and pray that God um, would be caring for um, those refugees around the world. We're at a unique time uh, in history right now where there's um, kind of unprecedented numbers of refugees around the world due to conflict, and so... I want to first pray for them, and then, uh, as John mentioned, there's information on our website about even some practical, tangible ways we can get involved here in Kansas City uh, in that. So uh, just join me as I, as I pray uh, for them this morning. Father in heaven, Psalm 46.9 declares that you make wars to cease to the ends of the earth. Father, help those in conflict with one another to come to a peaceful solution, So that civilians may resume their daily lives. Lord, we trust you. Lord, come to the aid of families who have fled to safety. Give them places where they can find help and rest. Provide host communities with resources to assist families arriving on their doorsteps. Lord, we trust you. Gracious Lord, we are helpless in the face of such desperation and tragedy. Let government leaders come to compassionate solutions for refugees in these dire circumstances. Open our ears to hear what your spirit is saying about our personal involvement in helping to meet the overwhelming needs of refugee children and families. Lord, we trust you. Lord, have mercy on those who have no warm place to stay. Provide desperate families with ample resources to withstand the weather. Infuse aid organizations with extra supplies to meet their variety of needs. Lord, we trust you. Lord, you know that children whose educations are disrupted often have a hard time catching up, and this threatens their future prospects to have a career and care for a family. We ask you to help children who are missing classes today. Help them to resume their studies with ease. Give teachers the training to help these students regain what they may have lost. Lord, we trust you. And now, Lord, as we turn to this perplexing passage, we say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Hear us, help us now, Lord, to hear and obey what you have to say to us. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. Well, as Anthony read that passage from the Gospel of Matthew this morning, um, I could guess what probably at least some of you were thinking, and that is, did Jesus just call someone a woman, no less, a dog? I bet you weren't expecting that this morning uh, when you opened up your Bible. And I probably some of you are also thinking, hmm, uh, I wonder what Bill's going to do with this passage this morning. Um, so why is this text here? And maybe even better yet, why did we decide to preach on it? Um, and if you've been at Christ Community for a little while, you know that in our preaching, we primarily work through books of the Bible section by section and kind of chapter by chapter, which means that we have to, or maybe I should say that we get to, um, not only preach the easy stuff, but the hard stuff too. And this is one of those passages that is incredibly difficult to understand on first reading. Because seriously, I mean, on the face of it, Jesus, he he comes off seeming both sexist and racist. He's a Jewish man uh, speaking, or maybe in one moment refusing not to speak to, uh, or refusing to speak to a Gentile woman. Um, It seems exclusive, harsh, mean, uncaring, cold, I'm just telling you a few of the words that came to my mind when I first read this passage. And and if you're Matthew, the gospel writer, who's carefully crafting this account of Jesus' life to communicate who Jesus is and what he'd come to do, and you're going to end the whole of your gospel in Matthew chapter 28 with this great commission from Jesus for the disciples, to go to all the earth and make disciples of all the nations, of all the Gentiles. It sort of seems like, why on earth would you include this story in your gospel? I mean, it seems so counterintuitive, so out of place. And that's actually what makes this story so important. Because Jesus, Jesus doesn't contradict himself and, and Matthew isn't dumb, and so there has to be a reason for what's going on here. So what is going on here? Why is this story in the Bible? Why is it in the Gospel of Matthew? Well, Jesus is testing this woman in order to test his disciples, in order to test us. He's, he's testing this woman in order to test, his, to test his disciples who are there listening, in order ultimately to even test us here this morning. And by the end, we're going to see that Jesus truly is a king for all people. He's a king for you if you'll have him. And if you'll have Jesus as your king, how do you you know that's true? of you? How do you know if you're in a place to have him as your king? Well, Jesus gives us sort of three tests this morning in this passage to help us understand that. We're going to see those unfold as we go through this morning. Matthew picks up the story in chapter 15, verse 21, right where we left off last week. And last week we saw Jesus being confronted by the religious leaders um, about traditions concerning hand washing and and religious cleanliness. And and Jesus taught us last week that, that what defiles us ultimately is not whether we've eaten with clean or unclean hands or the people we spend time with or the places that we go. Jesus says, no, what defiles you is what's already inside your heart. That there's something rotten in here that already makes you defiled. It's not what goes into us, but what comes out of us that makes us unclean, that Jesus says. It's not that we catch evil, it's that we leak evil. And here in this text, this week, Jesus demonstrates this this further by going into what would have been considered unclean Gentile pagan lands. Tyre and Sidon were unclean lands. So here's Jesus, a a Jewish person going to these unclean lands. He's showing again that ultimately what makes you unclean is not where you go, but what's inside of you. In this place, Tyre and Sidon, it's the ancestral home of of the Canaanites. These are the historic enemies of Israel. The people that as they are leave egypt these are the people they do battle with they're they're seeing as kind of the personification of the old testament of all that is opposed to god but now something new is happening jesus goes there ready to bring the good news that he is a king for all people even for the canaanites or does he because if that's what he's doing the passage we have in front of us right now seems like a really odd way of doing that look listen again to verses 21 through 26 and Jesus went away from there and withdrew into the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, which means, just gonna, you'll never believe this, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David, my daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But Jesus did not answer her a word. Jesus didn't answer her a word. And his disciples come and beg him saying, send her away for she is crying out after us. And Jesus answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And this is how 18th century uh, Parisian-born French historical painter Jean-Germain Durap depicts this moment. He captures well sort of Jesus' sense of utterly putting this woman off. So how can Jesus be a king for all people if this is how he responds to a woman in need, begging for his help for her child? And what's going on here in this passage because this woman, she isn't just coming to Jesus sort of politely, calmly asking, Hey, Jesus, do you, do you have a few minutes? I'd like to talk to you. I mean, she's crying out. She's yelling. The same word that's used for, for yelling or crying out here in other contexts is used uh, in, the, in the context of childbirth. This is, this is an intense crying out after Jesus. This woman won't stop at anything to get help for her daughter who's being tormented by evil. And One pastor remarking on, on the intensity of this moment points out that, that in life you have, you have cowards, you have heroes, you have regular people, and then you have parents. Because no matter what your disposition is normally as a person, whether you're normally sort of a bold, outgoing, heroic sort of person, or you're a timid, shy person, when it comes to your child who's in need, all of that doesn't matter anymore. And you'll break every social convention. You'll go against every natural instinct of your personality to get help for them. And that's where this mom is at. And in this clamor and pleading, Matthew tells us Jesus did not answer her a word. He doesn't even acknowledge her. It doesn't seem like Jesus, does it? But I mean, here it is. (laughs) Matthew 15 before us. What's happening here? Well, now the disciples also are begging Jesus. But they're, you might expect them to be saying, Jesus, come, what are you doing? Help this woman. But they actually are begging Jesus to get rid of her, to send her away. Again, we've seen this in the Gospel of Matthew before. They seem to think the best way to minister to people is to send people away from Jesus. The, it's an odd ministry strategy the disciples have. Um, send people away from Jesus. What happened to the feeding 5,000? Send people away. Here with the woman, send her away. He doesn't answer her, but he also won't get rid of her like the disciples want either. Instead, he responds by saying something puzzling. And, And it seems to be directed at the disciples, but it's certainly within hearing of the woman as well. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And yet, before Jesus can say anything else, this desperate mom kneels before him and begs, Lord, help me. And Jesus responds with a parable, a one-sentence parable. He says, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And like with all of Jesus' parables, this instantly makes everything clear for us. (laughs) Right? Right? Remember, parables are supposed to make us ponder. They're supposed to make us think. They test us. They, they kind of draw us in or, or put us out, depending on where we're at in faith. Now, it certainly isn't a compliment to be called a dog today, and it was even less so then, um, he says, it isn't right to let the dogs, Jesus actually uses a, a word here that means little dogs or puppies, still not great, right? Uh, it isn't right to let the dogs eat before the children. And so Jesus is saying, he's saying, I was sent to Israel first. That's the little children in his little one sentence parable. The little children are Israel, God's chosen people. He says, I was sent to them first. He's saying, there's an, there's an order here. Jesus must fulfill the promises to God's people. And then after the resurrection, this is what we see in Matthew, then he commissions the disciples to go out and and go to all nations, to all the Gentiles. And so calling her a, a, a dog or a little dog, again, still not much better, right? Jesus isn't making a racist statement. He's making a theological statement. It's not a comment on her ethnicity, but on her status as someone outside of the people of God. Which is true for every single one of us, Jew or Gentile, here this morning, spiritually. We're all outsiders, spiritually. That's where we start. Not worthy of the table. Not worthy of the bread. And this is test number one. Can you receive Jesus' reproach? Can Jesus call you a dog compared to his kingdom table? Don't be too proud to receive what Jesus, what the gospel says about your unworthiness. I mean, last week, Jesus told us that what is inside of you is rotten, that we don't catch evil, we leak it. That, that we, It's not what, something outside of us that comes into us that somehow gets us dirty or makes us bad, but there's stuff d- dwelling in our hearts already that is just rotten. Can you receive that? Or are you too proud, too offended to let Jesus talk to you that way? How do you respond when Jesus tells you the hard truth about your heart. How does this woman respond? How do you, you respond? Are you desperate enough to hear the hard truth about who you really are? About how bent in on yourself you've become? How does she respond in this moment? This desperate mom of a tormented little girl, how does she respond to these Seemingly really hard words from Jesus. Look at verse 27. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. This is the same scene here depicted uh, by the 17th century Dutch painter, Peter who who is actually one of Rembrandt's teachers. Notice how he includes the children eating on the lower left hand Corner there, and the little dogs in the foreground—kind of the elements of the parable painted into the painting. He says, "Woman's response—it's amazing. You see, she doesn't get angry and walk away from Jesus in this moment. She doesn't fall into despair and become despondent. No, she she enters the narrative world. She passes the test. She gets what Jesus is doing. She enters the narrative world of the parable, and she extends the metaphor." And in a respectful and brilliant way, she sees what Jesus is doing, and in her face, she responds. He, he's giving her a challenge and an offer, and she gets it. Pastor Tim Keller, he, he captures this so well. He writes, in Western cultures, we don't have anything like the kind of assertiveness that this woman displays. We only have the assertion of our rights, We don't know how to contend unless we're standing up for our rights, standing on our dignity and our goodness. But this woman is not doing this at all. This is rightless assertiveness, something we know nothing about. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I deserve on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness, and I need it now. And Jesus sees her incredible faith, faith in the goodness and mercy of God, faith that says, I know I don't deserve anything from God. She says, yes, I get it. I'm a Gentile. I don't deserve anything from you. But I trust the goodness and mercy of God. And Jesus responds this way. He says, oh woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. You see, Jesus is constantly calling on his own disciples for their lack of faith, right? He's saying, oh, you of little faith. How many times does he say that to the disciples over and over again in the Gospels? Oh, you of little faith. But here with this pagan Canaanite Gentile outsider woman, he says, great is your faith. You see, she proves herself to be, in one sense, a truer Israelite than his Jewish disciples. For as the Apostle Paul will explain in Romans, the true children of Abraham, the true people of God, are ultimately those who share Abraham's faith. Not just those who have his DNA. The the true children of Abraham, the true people of God, are those who share Abraham's faith. And this woman has that kind of faith. And, and this is the second test. Do you believe, do you have faith like that, that Jesus' mercy is big enough for a sinner like you? You see, this desperate mom, she, she isn't too proud to receive reproach. She owns that she isn't one of the children of Israel, that she doesn't deserve a place at the table. She doesn't argue with that. She, she says, I get that. But she also isn't too despondent to trust God's mercy. To plead on the basis of his goodness for undeserved favor. In other words, to beg for grace. She believes that Jesus will offer. And he does. And that's the thing. Jesus uncovers, unfolds the, the prejudice of the disciples right there in that moment. And exposes how they've looked at the outsiders. You see, there's two things that can keep us from coming to Christ our self-righteousness, our self-pity. Our self-righteousness, our self-pity. You see, she's not so self-righteous to think that she deserves Jesus' mercy, nor is she so self-pitying to think that she's beyond the reach of grace. And that kind of self-pity is really just another form of pride. You see, a self-pity that says Jesus could never love me Or, well, I know that Jesus loves and forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. It's really thinly veiled. It's a very effectively veiled, but only thinly veiled form of pride. A pride that says, so ultimately what makes me who I am, what I think of myself is is more important, has more weight than what God says about me. It says, in essence, God, I know you sent Jesus to die for me. I know you've loved me. I know you say that I'm forgiven. That's great. But really, I just need to work out this on myself before I can come to you. Which just puts us right back in the same place of trying to be independent from God, which is the greatest sin, the greatest failing in the first place. We're trying to fix ourselves, to save ourselves independent of Him. Can you trust His mercy? Can you receive his reproach? These are the first two tests that we see in this passage. Two answers to the question, have I really come to know Jesus or just a made-up version or sort of a two-dimensional version of Jesus? If you've really come to know Jesus, you're able to receive the hard things that Jesus has to say about you as a sinful human being and yet not fall into despair because you trust his goodness His grace and His mercy to rescue you, to restore you. And this produces a unique blend of of humility and confidence, of sobriety and joy. But the thing is, is you can think that you've passed test one and test two and still fail the third test. You can think that you received Christ's reproach. You can think that you felt the power of His mercy, but still not really be changed by it. If you don't believe me, look at what Matthew shows us next. In the next scene, he shows us a third test that demonstrates, um, reveals if we've truly passed one and two. And in verses 29 and 39, Matthew shows us, tells us, that Jesus leaves the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he goes to another area on the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus arrives, their people start coming. They flock to him, and they're bringing him lots of people who are sick and in need of help the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. And and Jesus just heals them. He heals lots and lots and lots of them. People are amazed and they they glorify the text says they glorify the God of Israel. It's an amazing scene. But now, once again, for the second time in the gospel, there's this huge crowd of hungry people with nothing to eat and no easy access to food. So what to do? Look at how Giovanni Lonfranco pictures the scene as I read what happens next. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry. So Jesus heads them off at the pass. He knows their first suggestion is going to be to send them away. Jesus says, I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, Well, how many loaves do you have? They said seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, Jesus took seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowd and they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over. Those who ate were 4,000 men beside women and children. So the question then is, why does Matthew include this story here? Why does he put this story, account the story, right after this kind of, Category shattering episode with this humble, brilliant, faith filled woman and her daughter. Well, it's to show us that the disciples and us too, so often, still miss it. Because you think that the disciples would get it, but they don't. They still don't. And so often, neither do we. We think that we've received Jesus' reproach, we think that we've trusted his mercy. But we can still fail the third test, which is sharing his compassion. Because you see, the sign that you've really received Jesus' reproach, really trusted his mercy, is that you're able to give it. You're able to extend it to other people. The disciples had seen Jesus do this before, right? They had seen him feed a crowd of 5,000 people plus women and children with just a meager amount of food. So why is their response in this moment, where are we going to get enough bread to feed all these people? In the wilderness, Jesus. Why didn't they just bring in what little food they had and say, here's what we have, Jesus, have at it. We've seen you do this before. We can't wait. It was amazing last time. I think the reason they don't is because of who's in the crowd and because where they're at geographically You see, they're still in Gentile lands. I have a map here for you, and it did this in first service. Oh, no, it's good. Okay, so you see down at the bottom, Decapolis. That's the region um, where they're at. The green area on the map is sort of the area where the Jews live. The the non-green areas are Gentile areas. That is the part of the Sea of Galilee that Mark tells us that this takes place in, in the Decapolis. So he's healing Gentiles. He's not healing Israelites here in this moment the people that Jesus is about to feed are Gentiles, just like the Canaanite woman. They aren't Jews. They aren't Israelites. And then it becomes clear that the disciples, they haven't really gotten it yet. The feeding of the 5,000, that made sense to them. Jesus, the Messiah is coming. And this is a little foretaste in that feeding of the 5,000, this great messianic feast. Jesus is the true and better Moses who's providing kind of this, this manna in the wilderness, this desolate place. That made sense to them. This is what the Messiah was supposed to do. But Not with with the Gentiles. They didn't expect the Gentiles to be at that feast. But Jesus is a king for all people. Yes, he is keeping his promises to the Jewish people. There is an, an order that he's sort of saying, but he is the fulfillment of the promise. He is the culmination of all the promises is Jesus. He's the one who would be the blessing to all the nations of the earth. That's what Israel was supposed to be all along. That was the promise that God made to Abraham that he would be uh, blessed and that he would then bless all the nations of the world through Abraham. Jesus is that. That's what Israel was supposed to be all along. And in coming for the lost sheep of Israel, Jesus is restoring them to that mission. You see, the sign that you've received Jesus' reproach and trusted his mercy is that you're able to extend his compassion. Can you bring people to him who you believe are not worthy of him? Who in your kind of natural state, you say, not that they wouldn't come. They wouldn't believe. But if you still come and bring them, then you know you've truly received his reproach and truly trusted his mercy because you know that you were so unlikely. Every one of us starts off spiritually dead, not seeking after God, not wanting him. Every one of us is just as unlikely as any other person to come to Jesus When you've really received his reproach and trusted his mercy, you know that that's true, that deep down that that I would have been the last person in the world to come if not for Jesus' mercy. But the needs physically, spiritually, emotionally that we have in the world, they can seem so overwhelming, can't they? We so easily succumb to compassion fatigue as we read about another refugee crisis, another car bombing, another outbreak of disease. And we start to live in this kind of scarcity mindset a mindset this is all somehow a zero sum game and there are too many needs and I need to take care of myself and my family first. And in those moments, you need to remember that God's economy ultimately is not one of scarcity but abundance. We worship the creator of the cosmos who spoke in out of nothing, everything came into being. So bring to Jesus what little you have and let him turn your crumbs into loaves that will feed more than you ever thought or imagined possible. And when your compassion starts to become fatigued, when it starts to run out, remember that Jesus isn't asking you to give what you don't have. He's only asking you to give what you do have. So give him what you do have and then trust him to provide the rest. Can you bring to people who him that are in need? Now at this point you may be thinking, okay, Bill, I I think I like this. I I think I'm with you maybe. But if I'm honest, I'm still wondering. If, If I'm so focused on giving myself away to other people's, then then who's going to take care of me? Who's going to provide for me? Who's going to to look after my needs? Well, God has promised to do that, hasn't he? I mean, who's promised to take care of you and your needs? Well, only the person who is the creator and sustainer of the universe the one who speaks and galaxies blink to life, the one who feeds thousands with just a few loaves and fish, the one who gave himself completely for you on the cross, God who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also graciously with him give us all things? That's the one who's going to take care of you, who's going to provide for you. That's the one who will worry about your needs. So when you find yourself waking up in the morning with either pride or despair creeping back in because they will all the time every morning cling anew to the king for all people a cling to the king for for us the king for you will provide for every one of your needs let's pray father in heaven I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, which is the only way that it can happen, would you make us a people who is able to receive your reproach? Would you allow us to hear the hard things that you have to say and not walk away offended, not walk away despondent? And will we allow us to trust your mercy and then extend that same compassion and mercy to other people who are just in desperate as in need as we are. Jesus' name, amen. Well, in the Anglican Book of Common Prayer, there's a, a prayer that's prayed before celebrating the Lord's Supper, Communion, um, which we celebrate here at Brookside each week. and It's called the Prayer of Humble Access. If you've ever been a part of a, an Episcopal church service or an Anglican church service somewhere in the world, um, you've probably heard this prayer. It's, again, it's prayed Before Communion. It was composed by the great Anglican pastor and theologian, uh, Thomas Cramner. It's, it's based on the text that we studied this morning. And it goes like this. It says, We do not presume to come to your table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in your manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table, but you are the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. It's on the basis of that mercy and the knowledge of our need of that mercy that we come and receive at the Lord's table. See, There's no room for pride or despair in the communion line. The line to receive communion is a place of humility and hope, of great joy and great sobriety, so if you're near here to Christ's community, let me just explain how we celebrate communion. First of all, we also have prayer available during communion near the sound booth there. There's a sign that says prayer. We'd love to pray with you this morning if you have uh, something you'd like someone to pray with you about. Um, We have four communion stations around the room. There's two here in the back and two here in the front. There's gluten-free communion elements available at this communion station in the back if you need that. And so when you come, just kind of get up with your row and get in line and gather in a group of four or five around the person serving communion. Take a piece of bread, dip it into the juice, and then partake together as a group. You don't have to be an official, formal member of Christ's community to celebrate communion with us. Um, If you're here this morning and you say, look, I've... I've received Jesus' reproach, and I've trusted his mercy. And come, taste and touch the goodness of the gospel this morning And that. And I also know that there are those of us here this morning, um, you're saying, I, I don't know if I'm there yet, Bill. And what do I do in this moment? And I would just encourage you, one, if you're still trying to figure out where am I at with this gospel? Can I really receive Jesus' reproach? Do I believe what he says about me? Um, just to use this time, maybe get up with your own. It's kind of hard not to get up with your own go. but you don't have to go and receive communion if you're not ready for that yet. Just use this time to continue to reflect and ask the question, Jesus, have I really trusted you? Am I really in this place? Or maybe this morning you came in thinking, I don't buy anything that Jesus says. But maybe somehow in the course of Between the moment you walked in the door and between now, you think, I I actually have received this reproach. I understand what Jesus says about me is true and and I want to trust his mercy. Maybe this morning for the first time you come and receive. Receive communion. Taste and touch the goodness of the gospel. Trust in Christ. Receive his mercy. He longs to extend it to you.